Well, hey, Beulah Church family. Uh, last week I was together with our grade fives and sixes talking about big service and why we gather together like this. In fact, I know many of them are together with us here at our West Campus back there. So why don't we give them a round of applause, a, a big Beulah welcome. So great. I love how we are a multi-generational, multi-ethnic and multi-campus church seeking to awaken greater Edmonton to King Jesus. And I'm so glad that together here at our West Campus and at our Southwest Campus, our Far to Lose Campus and our Beulah Church family online, that we can gather together uh, to learn about the why, the what, and the so what of the church as we continue our series called Dear Church. Uh, so why don't we do that by opening up to Acts chapter two, starting from verse 41 so that we can get a glimpse as to what the early church was like. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Does that sound like the church today? I mean, how closely do these verses line up with your lived experience of the church? If you were to ask your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, your family about the church, is this how they would describe their experience and their understanding of the church? Or would they actually describe the church the way that it's portrayed in the media? You know, in fact, if you were to Google the word church, uh, you wouldn't find what we just read. You would actually find stories about uh, political collusion, cover-ups, scandals, watered-down theology, and church buildings lying vacant and being sold. What happened? Right, how did we get from this incredible picture of the early church to what we see in the news today? Well, after the Emperor Constantine made Christianity the state religion in the year 312, he began promoting it. And you know, from that point on, it's not surprising to see how the church became uh, filled with all of these people, how it grew in number, uh, and also how it grew in corruptness, while simultaneously being watered down in faith and theology. After all, overnight, it suddenly became socially and politically advantageous to become a Christian. So many people who uh, weren't Christian and didn't know who Jesus was started calling themselves Christians and started going to a place called a church because it was, um, it was beneficial to their career and to their well-being. They didn't know who Christ was. And they didn't realize that the church isn't a building, but it's a people. So instead of seeing the way of Jesus, many saw uh, it being the way of, um, so instead of seeing the way of Jesus as being the way of servanthood, many saw it, it as the way of power. 
And instead of seeing the way of Jesus as being the way of love, many saw it as the way of prestige. And instead of seeing the way of Jesus as being the way of sacrifice, many saw it as the way of self-promotion. But you know, that's not why people follow Jesus in the first place. If you were to look at the early church in the first three centuries before Constantine, no one was compelled to become a Christian. It wasn't socially or politically advantageous to become a Christian either. In fact, if you became a Christian and got baptized like we saw today, you were essentially signing up to become a candidate for death. Yet somehow with that being the case and the environment and what it was like, the early church grew. In fact, we read today that the early church grew by over 3,000 people in one day. And then in the second century AD, the epistle to Dionysius noted that day by day, Christians increase more and more. And then in the third century, the theologian Tertullian in North Africa referred to Christians as being the majority in almost every city. So how? Right? How did we get from what the church was like in the first three centuries to what it is today? You know, I wonder if it's because Many of us have forgotten what it means to be the church. We the church, and, and when, I, when I talk about we the church, I'm not talking about the institutional church. I'm, I'm talking about the people of the church, you and I. We the church have forgotten our identity. We have mistaken minor things as major things. We've let peripheral issues become essential issues. We've made relevance more important than theology and tolerance more important than the gospel. But this isn't how it was with the early church. The early church knew who they were. They didn't forget their identity. They acted the way that they did because they were intentionally multiplying, courageously generous, incredibly welcoming, and relentlessly missional. This is who they were. Does that look familiar to anyone? I mean, it should. These are our core values as a church. Uh, so today, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the identity of the early church um, and our identity as Beulah by seeing how these four core values were evident in the early church. So let's start with the first one. Uh, dear church, we are intentionally multiplying. Well, sometime this week, I want to encourage you to read through the first two chapters of Acts, because when you do, you'll uh, read Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. Uh, you'll read about a passionate prayer meeting and all that happened during that prayer meeting. Uh, and then you'll see the Holy Spirit fill the disciples, uh, and you'll hear Peter proclaim the gospel that Jesus died to bear the punishment of our sins. And that God raised them from the dead to take care of our isolation. To minister to our separation. And to defeat death once and for all. And when he did that, he replaced it with everlasting life, meaning, and connection. That's what Jesus did. 
And that's what you would read about. Okay, so that, all that happened in the first couple of chapters of Acts chapter 2. Uh, so after all of that happened, we see uh, in verse 37 this. Okay, so Peter preached the gospel, all that happened. And then when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified and strongly urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Friends, what we just read right now, this is a picture of the early church that is intentionally multiplying. And they were intentionally multiplying because they devoted themselves, in verse 42, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So are you devoted to the same things? Uh, let, me, let me ask you a question. Uh, and, you know, you can raise your hand if, if this is true of you. Uh, but how many of you go to the doctor only if you're sick? Okay, so look around the room. It's probably a little bit more than a half. Uh, okay, so let me ask you another question, similar, kind of related, but different. Uh, how many of you, even if you're sick, you still don't go to the doctor? Okay, a little bit less than that. Okay. Isn't that interesting? I mean, as Canadians, uh, we see health and our, and our health, many of us, not all of us, many of us see it through the lens of intervention, if even, rather than a matter of prevention. Uh, so just for a moment now, what do you think would be different in, in your life and in those around you if we saw our physical health through a preventative lens? Now, we might not be able to get rid of cancer, right? Uh, but we could probably catch it. We would probably catch it early on when things are preventable. Over the last year, I've... Um, just wrestled with a lot of grief um, and sadness, but anger too. And I was, I was angry at my dad uh, because he didn't go to the doctor sooner. Like he could have gone a lot earlier when things were beginning to show with his prostate cancer, but he chose not to until it was too late. And I've wrestled with that a lot both in anger and in grief and in maybe I should have pushed him more. Why didn't I take it more seriously for him? And, and could I have even done anything? And I, I've wrestled with that a lot personally. And you know what? I, I bring that up because I find that for so many of us, we view our spiritual health in the exact same way. Where we only take notice to it when it's too late. You see it as intervention. So why don't we do this? Um, I'd, I'd love for us to do a little bit of a proactive 
preventative spiritual health inventory. And I'm going to ask you four questions, and I'd love for you to just honestly just answer these questions about yourself and your walk with God. Okay? Uh, the first one is, are you devoted to the apostles' teaching? Uh, now, what does that mean? Well, until the Bible was written, the early church relied on Jesus' teaching as communicated through the apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. So when you read in verse 42, and I'm just taking the wording from verse 42, that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, uh, what this is basically saying for us, or asking us, is are you devoted to the scriptures? So are you devoted to the scriptures? Are you devoted to reading the word of God? Are you devoted to studying the word of God? to memorizing the word of God. You know, what is your relationship with the Bible? And how important is it for you to hear the word of God preached and taught? And how often? You know, if you were to rate yourself on a scale of one to 10 uh, in terms of your engagement with, with the word of God, would you place yourself at a, at a one being, no, I don't really ever open up the word of God. And, and, or, or would it be at 10 and, and you would open it up daily? Research shows that the more often we open the word and are in the word and we're reading the word of God, the more likely our spiritual health is going to deepen, that our relationship with Christ will flourish and all aspects of spiritual maturity would go up into the right. You know, that's why one of the first things that I do when I wake up is I open the word I don't randomly pick a passage. I have a Bible reading plan. There's so many out there. I have a Bible reading plan. It's just the one that's in my paper Bible. Uh, and I'm reading through the Old Testament, the New Testament, Psalms, and, and different aspects of the Bible. And I'm just reading through it, just very, very next day. Going to, and when I open up the word, I always start with a prayer. I was like, dear Father, I pray that you would open my heart, open my mind, that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit, and that you would speak to me. Because we know the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. And I just ask God to do that. And I open the word and I, and I read. And sometimes I reread and I focus in on some passages. And I pray the, the words of scripture that I've read. And I journal about it. And then many times I'll just sit in silence. I'll, I'll set a timer because I can get distracted. Uh, I'll, I'll set a timer for five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, whatever that might be. And after reading the word, after praying, I'll just sit and I'll, and I'll just wait and I'll listen. Because the point isn't to check off my Bible reading plan, but the point is to just spend time with Jesus. And as I do that, and as I've been doing that, I've been amazed at how I've heard God speak and how he's brought things to mind about what's been going on. So Beulah Church family, may we let the word of Christ dwell richly among us, in and among us. So that's the first uh, spiritual health question. Uh, the second one in our inventory is this. Are you devoted to the fellowship? Are you, are you do you have people in your life that you can text, that you can call, 
that you can uh, reach out to and it doesn't take a couple weeks to get together with them. They would literally drop anything and get together with you that night or the next day or take some time on the phone if, if something's going on. And, and you can talk about your relationship with Jesus with them and, and you can pray together with them, not just for them, but they're, they're like, let's pray together right now. Like, do you have people in your life that you are gathering, growing, giving, and going together with? I love this one story from one of our mid-sized communities, or, or MSCs for short, and they've been living this out um, throughout the pandemic. Uh, regardless of what the restrictions were, they gathered together, sometimes online, other times outdoor, uh, and when the restrictions allowed, they would gather indoor. Right? They continued to gather through the pandemic. Uh, they also grew together as a mid-sized community uh, because they formed small groups that met uh, when the big group wasn't meeting. And, and as in these smaller groups, they would study the Bible together. They would pray with one another. They would disciple each other. They would, they would, they would be there for one another. And then they uh, gave together as a team this one instance. Uh, they had a hot dog roast, and then they cleaned up Collingwood Park together. Not because the city asked them to, <laughs> right? But just because they wanted to serve their neighborhood. And throughout the pandemic, they were no stranger to going together as multipliers. In fact, uh, after one of their MSC members um, mentioned to the group that their neighbor, uh, who had recently had a stroke, needed to downsize and, and, and they needed help unpacking their boxes, uh, this neighbor, who is um, the MSC member who shared this story about their neighbor, brought that to their MSC. Uh, and then a bunch of people in their MSC were like, hey, can we help too? And, and as an MSC, they actually went and, and just served this neighbor of theirs who didn't yet have a relationship with Jesus, but they just served them with the love of God. They loved their neighbor in that way. Do you have fellowship with others like this? On a scale of one to 10, one being, uh, it's been a while or maybe never, to 10 being, yeah, like that, that is, you've just described my life. Actually, you described my MC. <laughs> uh, where would you place yourself on that spectrum? If you don't, I want to encourage you to go to Beulah.family uh, and click the link, join a group today. Because in groups, uh, you're going to experience such vibrancy in your relationship with Christ. Because being in a group is the most holistic way to gather, grow, give, and go together with others. Well, here's our third question, our spiritual health question. Uh, it's, are you breaking, are you devoted to the breaking of bread? Now, not just talking about eating. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about, specifically in this context, it's referring to the Lord's Supper. Taking the Lord's Supper together with others in corporate worship. All right, so for the early church, maybe you're like, okay, what, what did a worship service look like for the early church? Well, for the early church, it involved the breaking of bread, um, the Lord's Supper, singing, teaching, praying. A lot of what we do today is what the early church did as well when they gathered together like this for corporate worship. So how often do you worship? Do you worship daily? Never? Occasionally? I mean, how often do you worship? And how about, how about here? Because I'm not just talking about corporate worship, I was talking about private worship and all aspects, but let's talk about corporate worship like this here. How often do you gather together with others like this for corporate worship? 
Is it weekly? Is it bi-weekly? Is it monthly? Is it Christmas Eve, Easter, and Mother's Day, or just when it's convenient? How important is corporate worship for you? You know, I, I find it interesting. Uh, yeah, you know, this upcoming week, the Oilers are going to face off against the Avs, and we're going to destroy them, right? Right, we're going to destroy them. Yeah, and hopefully we'll face Carolina in the finals. I mean, we don't yet know. Be a good revisit of 2006. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I bring that up, not just because I'm excited, but I bring it up because I'm amazed at how many of us would drop everything and reschedule absolutely everything, even if something's been scheduled for months, how we would drop that and rearrange our plans if someone gave you a call and said, I have an extra ticket to go to the game. Do you want to go? Right? Like, how many of us would do that? (laughs) But why don't we view gathering like this in the same way? Right? Like, why isn't gathering together with our church family as much of, sorry, not even as much of a priority, why isn't it a greater priority than a game as exciting as it is, and my heartbeat did get to about 120 beats per minute during the Battle of Alberta, during the games, it was nuts, right? And yes, it's exciting, yes, it's fun, but man, it's temporary. Why do we place more value in gathering together with others for that than this? Well, our last spiritual health question is about prayer. Are you devoted to prayer? And what does your prayer life look like? One being, you know, doesn't exist. Two, uh, ten being, it's, it's daily. It's not only private, but it's public. And I, I regularly gather together with others for prayer. Uh, how many of you have seen a word cloud? You know what I'm talking about? Like you kind of insert an article into the software and it, and it pulls up uh, by frequency of word how uh, important of a word was in that. So I'm going to show you this. I put together... Um, I, I actually, for the Battle of Alberta, I found all these articles and I copy and pasted them into this software, okay, this word cloud software. Uh, and what happened in this software is it basically, out of the thousands of words that I inputted, it, by frequency of word, the more frequent a word appeared, the bigger it appeared on this. Okay, so let's take a look at this, okay, this is the Battle of Alberta. Isn't it interesting? that there's no mention of any Calgary Flames players. <laughs> it's not a coincidence. <laughs> Yet we see McDavid's and Kane's name there, right? I mean, I wish Nuge's, like Nuge would be on because he did great for the last couple of games, but isn't that interesting though? Yeah, obviously it's articles about the Battle of Alberta, so you'd have words, you know, game and oilers and flames and all that, but, but you kind of see in an image what word appeared the most frequently. Well, if we were to do a word cloud on your prayer life, what words do you think would appear the largest? This past week was a really difficult week for me. Um, It was the one year anniversary of my dad passing and I honestly, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, So I just went about my day the way I normally did. On Wednesday, I I was preparing today's message. Uh, I had meetings. In the evening, uh, we went out for dinner, and my two daughters came to youth group here 
And I just, I didn't know what to expect, so I just lived my day the way I would normally live it. But all throughout the day, I felt so lonely. Now, it's not because I was by myself. I was, like, there were people around me literally all day. But I felt so lonely. Have you ever experienced something like that? So if I were to do a word cloud of my prayer life just for this past week, you would see words like need, like, Lord, I need you. Or help. Or why? Or comfort? Or peace? What would your word cloud look like? Would there even be any words on your word cloud? For the disciples, by devoting themselves to these practices, they made more disciples, and they intentionally multiplied. Uh, they lived out this value, and that's why in 243, Acts 2.43, we read this, everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. That, that's what it means. What we just talked about is what it means to be intentionally multiplying. So that's our first value. Our second value is this, dear church, we are courageously generous. And let's take a look at verse 44 and 45 to see how. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, I immediately thought of communism. It, it, was, just, it was just weird. I was like, oh, is this, like, is this really how it was with the early church? Like, did no one own private property? Like, What's going on here? Like, is this what this passage is talking about? Like, we shouldn't own property in our own name? Like, is that what it means to be courageously generous? That we just kind of all pool our funds together? Like, is that, is that what, is that what's going on here? Well, to answer that question, we need to understand the context of the early church. And in the early church, at that time, there were actually other groups who required or, or were doing the same sort of thing when it came to finances and possessions. So uh, let me tell you about this one group. It, they were a few miles east of Jerusalem, uh, and the Essene leaders of this Qumran community required all new members to sell everything that they owned and all that they had and give it to the community. And they did it because they wanted, to, uh, they wanted to protect their people from the sin that can often accompany money and possessions and ownership. Uh, well, the Gre in the Greco-Roman culture, there is a custom as well, an another custom that required people to return favor for favor. Uh, it was a custom during that time. But you know what, neither of these reasons were why the early church was doing what they were doing. And it's not why they were practicing courageous generosity either. The reason why the early church practiced courageous generosity was simple. Um, they were just doing what Jesus asked them to do. In Matthew 23, 8, Jesus called his disciples brothers and sisters. And why did he use that analogy? Because he wanted them to take care of each other the way that 
brothers and sisters and family members ought to take care of each other. Right? So he's like, hey, like a parent should take care of their child and, and children, grown children should take care of their uh, grown parents, aging parents, and grandparents should take care of their grandkids and vice versa, and siblings should take care of one another. Now, I know that's not the case uh, for everyone. That doesn't describe everyone's family dynamic, but, but like family ought to do that. Jesus was like, hey, we should treat one another like family. In fact, that's why every week you hear us talking about this website address called Beulah.Family. <laughs> it's not just some cute little website address that's kind of like a digital bulletin. Uh, but the reason we talk about Beulah.Family is because we want to be constantly reminded that we are family. So take for consideration uh, David Riley and Olive, who got baptized today. These people weren't just some random strangers. Literally, they, they're your brothers and sisters. Like, that's who got baptized. Today, your family, three members of your family in this service, one member last service, and four last night got baptized. Like, that's what happened. Our family made these decisions. Now, uh, if you find this concept difficult to grasp because your immediate family's, uh, you know, your, your experience in your immediate family wasn't that, and it wasn't what it should have been, ought to have been, well, then let's take a look at Acts 4.32 uh, to read about a description of uh, how the early church was so incredibly generous. Now, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, right? They were one, they were of one heart and mind. That's how it should be. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. Right? No one claimed it. It didn't say that people didn't have personal possessions. It's just so that no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own. But instead, they held everything in common. I love how this one theologian, Ben Witherington III, puts it. What this suggests is a picture of no one claiming owner's rights. No one exhibiting selfishness or possessiveness. It's a picture of sharing without thought of reciprocity. Something which would be very surprising in a world where almost all relationships involving property were assumed to operate on the basis of some sort of reciprocity. In other words, uh, the disciples saw themselves as stewards of their possessions and property rather than owners. And because they saw themselves as stewards, they readily sold portions of what they owned to meet a need that arose in the church. Now, if you were to carefully examine the verbs in this passage, in Acts 2, um, actually, I'll get to the verbs just in a little bit, but um, if you were to carefully examine Acts 2, you would actually not find any incident of a transferring of ownership of property. Uh, neither would you find language talking about a requirement to surrender personal property. Uh, neither would you actually find uh, anyone talking about the church having to own and control everyone's individual property. That's not what we read about, that's not what we read about, and that's not what happened in the early church. And said, so this is what we read. Uh, when there was a need, people in the church liquidated some of what they had, 
gave to the church who then met the need. Like that is, that, like that's what happened. That's what we're reading about here. And we know this because of two verbs in Acts 2.45. The two verbs are sold and distributed. Now oftentimes when we hear those verbs sold and distributed, we think I sold something and then I distributed something. But when it came to their personal property, that's not what that means here. Because those two verbs are imperfect verbs in Greek, which means it's not one and done, I sold everything and I distributed everything. It's basically something that happened over and over again. When there is a need, I sold some of what I owned and I distributed. And then when there is another need, I sold some of what I owned and then I distributed. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, okay, uh, what about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? What about that? Well, their sin was deceit. Uh, their sin actually wasn't the fact that they, that they kept some money for themselves. So what does this mean? Well, what does this mean for us today? Uh, well, the early church, we can sum everything that we've just talked about with this phrase. The early church valued people over possessions. So is this how you view your money? If there is a need in the church, uh, would you sell some of what you own or what you have, would you give to meet that need? Have you done that before? Would you do it again? When you look at all that you have, uh, do you see everything that you have as your net worth or as assets under management? You know, I hate that phrase, net worth. I mean, just think about that, right? Like, what, 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 what do people talk about when they talk about net worth? Oh, it's all your property and your money and your assets and your investments and all that stuff. And put all that stuff together, plus, minus, all that, and that's your net worth. Is it? Like, are our finances and our property... And all that is, is that, is that our identity? Is that our worth? Is that who we are? In our finances and our property and all that we have, it's just that. It's just money. It's just finances. It's just property. It's assets. They're assets that are under management for the time being. Our net worth is that we're children of God. Right? That's our net worth. So is that how you view your finances? Oh, when you consider the biblical principle of tithing, uh, tithing on your paycheck, uh, tithing on uh, gifts, on an income tax refund, on investments, on an inheritance, on your will, when you think about that biblical principle of tithing, do you see that as giving up 10% of what's yours? Or merely returning 10% of what you've been called to steward? Assets under management. So that's what 
the early church is talking about. That's what it means for us to be courageously generous. But, you know, just like the early church was courageously generous, they were also incredibly welcoming. Oh, we see in verse 46 and 47 what that looks like. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Can you envision this? I mean, every day, right? Every day, imagine this. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. Friends, the early church gathered together regularly, both in the temple and in house to house. It wasn't an either or. It was a both and. And that's why it's so important that we regularly gather together like this as a church family. In fact, when the church, or because the church gathered together regularly, we find that no one was isolated or alone. No one thought that they could be a disciple in isolation from each other either. So we see in these verses that, yes, they did that, and, and then they ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And then every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So we see here that the early church was growing together. And, I, you know, I'm not just talking about growing wider because they were eating a lot. Uh, but they were growing together in number and in depth. Why? Because they were giving and going together. The early church grew together because they were giving and going together. And as a result, they enjoyed the favor of all the people, specifically their neighbors whom were, they were, who were around them. They were joyful and they had glad and sincere hearts. Uh, so if you were to pull your neighbor, for example, just go to one of your neighbors and ask them, hey, okay, so this, um, there's this phrase, this value that we have at our church called incredibly welcoming. Uh, how, how much do I represent that? Like, would you call me incredibly welcoming? And if you asked one of your neighbors that, how would they respond? Would they be like, oh, what's your name again? <laughs> or would they be like, hey, you know, every time I'm with you, I feel at home with you. In fact, I hope you never move away. What would they say? If you were to read the Gospels, uh, you would know, uh, you would see the life and the rhythms of Jesus. And, and one of the ways that you would see Jesus living out his life uh, is through radically ordinary hospitality. I love that phrase, radically ordinary hospitality. Uh, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that uh, every time Jesus connected with people, he vacuumed everything, dusted, and, and prepared a nice charcuterie board. You can't even say that word, but it's like a nice charcuterie board, right? That everyone could enjoy, and everything was picture perfect, right? Oh, that's not what we mean. <laughs> that's not what Jesus did. When we talk as a church about being incredibly welcoming and us as a church individually and corporately practicing radically ordinary hospitality, what we're talking about is doing what Jesus did. And what did he do? He saw people. He listened. He ate. He sat together with, he lingered with others. So this upcoming week, what is one way that you can practice radically ordinary hospitality? 
Maybe it's just lingering a little bit longer after dropping your kids off at school. Or at that soccer match, instead of being on your phone, connecting with other parents. At work, just lingering a little bit longer, connecting with your coworkers. When you're gardening or when you're on a walk, not going to the other side of the street when you see someone coming, but going to the person and talking and saying hi and not just, hey, how are you doing? Where you're walking and you, you, know, you don't stop at all, but you stop. And what does it look like for you to practice radically ordinary hospitality this week? Well, you know, at the beginning of this message, I talked about the, how, how the early church knew who they were, they knew their identity, and we read Acts 2, 41 to 47, and they acted the way that they did because they knew who they were, right? They, they knew their identity. So by unpacking these verses, we saw how the early church was intentionally multiplying, courageously generous, and incredibly welcoming. Uh, but you know, if you were to look at, if you were to kind of step back and look at the entirety of the passage and see how the church has continued to grow uh, despite plagues and pandemics and whatever politics might have gotten in the way, there's actually a reason for that. It's because the early church was relentlessly missional. And that's our fourth value as a church. Uh, we are relentlessly missional. But you know, we're not going to walk through that today uh, because that's actually what we're going to be talking about next week. Uh, so what I wanted to do was, just as we end our time together, usually I pray a benediction, a blessing over us as a church family. And, and instead of doing that as a prayer, I just, I want to speak this benediction and this blessing over each and every one of us with our eyes open, okay? And I want to do this um, as a commissioning, as a prayer over us, okay? So may we as a church family live out the life rhythms and values of the early church by continuing to live out our core values as a church, by being intentionally multiplying, courageously generous, incredibly welcoming, and relentlessly missional. And in doing so, as a church family, may we never mistake minor things as major things. May we never let peripheral issues become essential issues and divide. May we never water down right theology and doctrine for the sake of cultural relevance. And may we never let anything take the primary place of the gospel and of King Jesus in our lives and in our church. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray together. Uh, so Father, may that be so. May that be true in an ever-increasing manner in each and every one of our lives and together corporately as a church family. And as a result of all this, I pray, Jesus, that you would be king over our lives and that as a church family, we would know you deeply and be known by you fully that you would continue to chisel away what needs to be chiseled away so that we would become like you and be made into your image. And I pray in the coming days that you would awaken the spiritually sleeping and dead who are around us to new life in you, Jesus. And I pray that every single one of us would experience a day where we are there down beside the baptism tank 
baptizing our neighbors, our friends, our family members, our classmates, and our coworkers. Pray that you would use us to awaken those around us to you, King Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.